Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. Back when the Defense Innovation Unit, then called the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, was still in its infancy, one of the first problems DOD leaders asked DIU to tackle was the threat from unmanned aerial vehicles. The thinking at the time was this was a perfect example of the sort of thing DIU was built to do, take commercial technologies and help turn them into military capabilities. That's partly because there is a significant commercial market for systems that can detect and defeat drones that are doing things they're not supposed to do. DIU is now at the point where it's awarded five prototype contracts to deliver counter-UAS capabilities to the military. In the process, though, it's developed new ways of identifying technologies and shepherding companies through the process that might turn out to be useful for other kinds of capabilities. On this week's show, we're going to hear about the evolution of that counter-UAS mission and why it's turned out to be such a difficult problem. Our guest is Lieutenant Colonel David Willard, the program manager for the counter-UAS program at DIU. He joined me by phone from Silicon Valley, where DIU is based. DIU, when it was started, the mission was to develop DOD-focused solutions using commercial-focused products. The initial engagement with DIU around counter-UAS happened at our director level uh, when the Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, Secretary Work, uh, had reached out to our director, Raj Shaw, and requested him to look into what was happening in in the commercial space Uh, There was a fair amount of press at the time about venture capital investment into counter-U.S. technologies and about the creation of a commercial counter-U.S. market, specifically around counter-espionage in um, industrial espionage, uh, around events in stadiums, prisons, um, public sector uh, entities that had had a U.A.S. problem that was developing. Um, And so there was a fair amount of investment that was being made at the time, and again, DepSecDef work. It reached out and asked DIU to see what was happening in the space and, and share back with the department what, what we found. And so that's how we initially started. This is this time frame is probably, what, four or four years ago or so? This was fall of 2016. The DIUX, still at the time, uh, was still relatively in its infancy. We had just received the contract authority and, and some money to put on contract. Uh, that summer of 2016, and that's kind of when we started our work with the commercial industry as in that transaction-focused model. And from there, uh, we started looking at okay, well, what are those, what are those, where are those intersections where there is that tremendous amount of uh, investment in the commercial space, where those markets are growing and developing, and counter UAS happened to be one of those markets. And so we started looking in that space again, fall of 2016, and from there um, realized that there were gaps in what was being fielded downrange and particularly what the plans were for the continental U.S. or our stateside-based systems that maybe had different sorts of requirements than what we needed downrange. So you're talking about like force protection on a base in CONUS versus what troops might face from a terrorist threat overseas. Is that the right distinction to think about? C- correct. That's uh, that's one way to think about it. Now, the counter-UAS problem space is is wickedly complex. It seems relatively straightforward at first glance, but it is actually very complex. Um, and when you look at the number of facilities that the DOD would need to cover, particularly when you look stateside, um, and you look at the costs for some of those kind of more traditional systems that do it all and require a level of training and operator um, input, 
that succeed downrange, succeed in a, in a contingency environment, in a wartime environment, the costs to implement those solutions for every installation, both from a dollar perspective of buying those systems, but also from a training and a um, operational uh, concept burden, become pretty insurmountable pretty quickly. So that's probably the easiest distinction to make in the space. But there's a lot more uh, nuance. Uh, even amongst the installations here stateside, uh, as well as what's needed downrange. The other thing, our, our first set of projects actually came about, um, uh, focused around the Marine Corps and a mobile counter UAS platform. And so that's where we started in the space. That was our first project work, working with the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, looking to fill a gap where commercial companies had small, low-cost, light footprint radio frequency solutions that were being implemented for VIPs and some overseas markets in kind of mobile platforms, like, you know, on vehicles, on trucks. And there was a need that, that people were starting to foresee for this mobile capability. Uh, and so we, that was our first funded project was to get after that gap in, you know, vehicle mounted systems um, with a core of, uh, you know, using radio frequency technology, RF system technology, which there are a number of commercial companies that we're exploring. Yeah, actually, let me let me take you back to what what you were starting to say a couple of minutes ago. You know, around the t- 2016 timeframe when you first started to explore the commercial space for counter UAS. How developed was that market at this at that time, and and how far has it come since then? Yeah, so there was, a, as I mentioned, there was a fair amount of investment in commercial um, uh, startups. So I, I don't know the exact numbers offhand, but. We're talking uh, probably dozens of companies that had investments um, to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars for counter UAS technologies. Again, most of those were focused on what was going to develop in the commercial uh, counter UAS market. So around the Super Bowl and Major League Baseball, um, prisons uh, have had a problem with, uh, with drones. You've got companies that have people flying camera drones. Uh, trying to spy in their windows and copy what's on their whiteboards um, in their headquarters. And so those sorts of problem uh, spaces were where the investors and these startup, these startup companies were looking at as opportunities. That's what was happening in that 2015, 2000, early 2016 kind of time frame. And so there were, there were funded, well-funded companies from some of the larger uh, uh, venture capital firms that had already started work in this space, were already starting to, to work towards getting their customers, um, getting equipment out there along with the development and productization out there. What's happened though, I guess in, in all new technology areas, this is challenging. In counter UAS, it happens to be particularly challenging because many of the, the regulations and laws require a lot of collaboration on the part of government to clearly define the scope of what companies and individuals and entities that are not DOD or not government can and cannot do when they have a, a, an unmanned air system, a small UAS, um, uh, that is violating what they perceive to be their privacy or is acting in a, in a way that's threatening or hostile to um, a, you know, a, a, large enga- a large gathering of people like might be happening at a stadium. So that process, it is very cumbersome and um, uh, deliberative where you have the FAA, you have the Department of Transportation, um, you've got the uh, FCC because we're talking about spectrum and airways when you're talking about radio frequency companies, RF companies. There, it's a, it was a very complex uh, kind of uh, 
problem for them to get after. And then you have to work through Congress to change laws and get interpretations from the legal community on what is or isn't allowed given the current set of laws and what Congress is implementing. Um, all of that requires uh, time and, again, a lot of deliberation and a lot of input from a lot of different people. And so in the counter-UAS problem space in commercial markets, those didn't develop as quickly as people would have expected them to. So that's been a challenge for everybody in this space, particularly the commercial companies who really were gearing up to attack that market first. Yeah, so fair to say that the, the way the market was developing, it, it was by necessity developing in a constricted regular or a confusing regulatory environment that, that you wouldn't necessarily even have to think about if you were building something for pure military use, because you guys probably don't have any qualms about just shooting a drone down if it's flying over prohibited airspace over a base. Well, you would think that, but we're governed uh, as much as anybody else by uh, regulation and law. Hmm. Now, we have certain reliefs that the commercial industry doesn't, you know, commercial entities don't have and the public sector doesn't have. Um, but those weren't codified until the 2000, what, 2017 NDA, or actually I think it was 2018 NDA, when those were actually codified and the it was clearly stated that the Department of Defense had the right and the ability to knock drones out of the sky, either through physical capture. Um, and then we did, we were given some level of relief on radio frequency techniques, although those had continued to be in question, particularly for the CONUS mission, because you have the wiretapping laws, which, which apply. And so how you interpret, uh, how you interpret the law that's on the books, um, BOD does not get a get out of jail free card with, with respect to those laws, particularly CONUS. Um, you are right in the sense that in, uh, in, in a war zone and in, in the contingency operations were, were engaged in overseas, particularly in, in um, CENTCOM and in the Middle East, they didn't apply as, uh, as they do um, stateside, but there are still some considerations. Certainly, um, the Department of Defense is very cognizant of the collateral damage associated with um, any effect that we create for small UAS. And so when you're operating... In a, a zone where you're where you're the protector of, of the local populace and you're you're trying to fight quote unquote the bad guy, um, you know the last thing we want to do is create casualties for local communities um, because we didn't understand our technology or we employed our technology in a way that um, that caused uh, damage to somebody's property or um, somebody's uh, person. Lieutenant Colonel David Willard is a program manager at the Defense Innovation Unit. We're back in just a few minutes to talk more about the evolution of DIU's counter-UAS mission in just a minute. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu. This is On DoD. Lieutenant Colonel David Willard is our guest this week. He's a program manager at the Defense Innovation Unit in charge of DIU's work on countering unmanned aerial systems, or drones. As we've been discussing, this became a DIU mission area in the first place because there are several well-funded commercial companies who've been working on the counter-UAS problem. Talk, talk a bit more, if you would, about the gaps, to the extent there are still gaps, between what these commercial solutions are doing and what you would need downrange. I mean, how is commercial commercial technology evolved to, to solve some of these battlefield challenges and, as you said, nuances earlier? So the companies that are working in the commercial space on counter-UAS, they are very sophisticated technologists. 
They understand their medium, their modality very well. They tend to be very focused on creating products that work and that require very little um, kind of support and service and operational know-how from their customers. For the DOD, we tend to, to accept uh, kind of a heavier burden on the operator um, from a workload perspective, from a training and knowledge perspective. But with counter UAS, uh, particularly overseas, most of the commercial technologies actually work quite well or could work quite well. The challenge with DOD is we require um, kind of more complex system of systems, particularly for the problem sets we have downrange. The threats that we see overseas are going to be somewhat different than the threats that you see here in the U.S. So whereas here in the continental U.S., you know, much of the threat is going to be around kind of those small group one, group two, uh, small UAS, where it's more surveillance, it's somebody who's flying their drone inappropriately, um, it may be a bad actor who has uh, intentions to use their drone um, negatively, but that person is not going to have access here in the U.S., to a larger state-sponsored system like a Group 3 that was flown you know, from Yemen or it was flown um, into Saudi Arabia last year. Those systems are a player when you're talking about wartime contingency operations. And so for the DOD, there really isn't kind of a break. Um, the, you, know, you, you need personnel and systems that can work across the full spectrum and kind of from the small drone all the way up to kind of your larger, your counter air uh, elements. And so that's one of the challenges the DOD faces is how do you draw boundaries between, you know, what equipment could and should do given an operational uh, environment where you have the full range or full spectrum of threat potentially facing you. Does that make sense? No, it does that make helps? sense. Because if, yeah, if, if you're not drawing that line somewhere, you're definitely creeping into traditional air defense missions. So where, where right. do you draw that line? That's a good question, and that's where I think what the DoD is struggling with now. Because um, you know, is it a force protection issue? Uh, at which point you give it to um, your security forces folks and consider it. You know, is this a a threat that is you know like somebody trying to break through the fence, um, or is this an a counter air uh, issue? At which point you give it to a different you know a different entity, a different function inside the Department of Defense, and so that's one of the challenges that DOD faces as we continue to kind of evolve with the threat. Some of that is just natural growing pains. Some of that is dependent on us becoming smarter and more informed about the threats and what the, how these threats kind of work either independently or could be manipulated by a sophisticated threat actor as a system of threats against us. Fair, fair to say, at least though, that, that your focus right now is on threats posed by commercial systems or commercial systems that could be adapted rather than something a nation state might build? Correct. Very much so. And in most commercial companies, their technology is focused on those small UAS that you can buy off of Amazon. You can buy at the store. And for, again, most of that threat is really nuisance threat. It's people that aren't operating their drones wisely uh, or in accordance with the law. Um, in very small cases, might it be folks that are operating their drones with the intent to harm or hurt somebody? Um, there is a surveillance threat, you know, look, you know, where you could have somebody staking out a defense installation, looking for patterns of life, looking to see where people congregate, what times of day are, you know, most uh, effective if they were planning to actually execute some sort of, uh, of attack. You, you could see threats 
like what we've seen downrange where people have weaponized uh, a small drone and tried to drop a, uh, a weapon somewhere or kind of taken that small drone and flown it um, into something to create you know, physical damage. Those are definitely things that you could see in a kind of threat scenario here in the U.S. Again, they're not limited to DOD installations. And those are the things that commercial industry and commercial companies are looking to kind of solve for. So there are you know, a number of different solutions, some of which, as I mentioned, radio frequency solutions, which just work in the RF spectrum to create effects and either um, uh, jam the operator or uh, safely disconnect the operator from the drone, and then they're able to kind of force the drone to, to take some sort of action, at which point law enforcement can be involved, uh, or maybe this is law enforcement that's involved. Um, and then you have you know, all the benefits of being able to collect the drone do your forensics, kind of create an investigation, and, and also maybe understand where this came from, who operated it, um, and you have that kind of forensics chain uh, available to you. Uh, you, have com- you have companies and technologies that are, that are looking at those kinetic effects. And so in, in uh, again, permissive space and commercial companies, we're, we're mostly talking about, um, well, at least in the commercial UAS market, we're talking about companies that that are uh, supporting like net capture solutions where they're, they're able to send a drone out to meet another drone. And then once that drone uh, kind of meets the criteria established, again, governed in large part by law and regulation, um, then you could basically send a, a, a net to capture that, that drone and then drag it back uh, to, to deliver it at a safe location or to a location of your choosing. And again, that gives you the opportunity to engage from a law enforcement or from an investigative perspective to see where was that drone from? Why was it where it was? You know, who was operating it? Um, at least take it out of service. And those are all ways that commercial companies are looking to kind of engage on the mitigation side. One of the most important things in counter UAS is just understanding what's happening in your environment. So some of this will be solved as we get to, you know, UTM, which is this universal traffic management program that is being um, rolled out in um, across the, uh, uh, the federal government. And there's been a fair amount of articles on that over the last, you know, actually the last couple of years, but in particular the last um, a few months with remote ID is another element to this. So as the U.S. government begins to kind of employ technologies and employ uh, regulations that allow us to more closely control the airspace that's above, then this won't be as much of a problem. But currently, detections, being able to understand what's happening around you is probably the most important thing that, that anybody um, can, can do right now, because at least with knowledge, one, you're collecting information and data that you can use to make a more informed decision about what sort of resourcing you do need to apply to the problem set. Um, you can also have some of those same uh, sort of benefits when it comes to um, being able to share that data or that information with law enforcement or with um, investigative organizations. So you can, again, understand why something's happening, understand when it's happening, understand the limits and the scope of what's happening around you, and then you can decide what, you know, what's the next step to take. Um, and that's where those mitigation effects come in. So commercial really is focused on those two things. I would say kind of safe, low collateral damage, um, regulation-friendly uh, mitigations, but just as important, it's the detection of the threat and being able to characterize um, the threat, uh, share that information with law enforcement, share that information with your security personnel or with your operational personnel who maybe all they need to do is close the blinds or maybe they just need to move um, undercover somewhere for a period of time until 
the drone runs out of battery and goes home, and then you can come back out and continue whatever it was you were doing. Lieutenant Colonel David Willard is the program manager for the Defense Innovation Unit's counter UAS program. He's back with us after another short break on Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Servin. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Lieutenant Colonel David Willard, the Program Manager for Countering Unmanned Aerial Systems at the Defense Innovation Unit. We've been discussing some of the challenges DIU has run into as it's tried to integrate some of the commercial counter UAS technologies that are out there into the Defense Department's counter UAS toolkit. You've talked a fair amount about the sort of regulatory and policy concerns around aerospace, but I'm wondering if there are challenges around sort of IT and acquisition policy when it comes to counter UAS? I mean, for and this is probably something that DIU thinks about across all your portfolios, but but are, are there are there difficulties in bringing a commercial system in like this and making it policy compliant with things like, you know, NIST 800-171? I mean, do you have to run, the, run a system like this through the risk management framework, for example? Yes. Yeah, so anytime you're bringing commercial technology into the Department of Defense, there are a number of hurdles to, to, that you have to get through. Uh, DIU prides itself on working with partners inside the Department of Defense um, who can work with our companies to overcome those hurdles. It's still a process. It's still a challenge. Uh, it still very much depends on um, the government being uh, a good partner in that process. Um, and it also depends on those individual companies being willing to put the time and effort required to run that gamut. Uh, it is a uh, it is a uh, it is a challenging process for any organization, any company, particularly companies that haven't worked with the Department of Defense before. So one of the interesting things, I guess interesting things I've, I've seen in my time at DIU is that, you know, you have companies that, that are started and formed by people that come out of the um, kind of defense space, so they have awareness of it. And they many times are able to kind of, you know, check off some of those boxes before they actually engage with us. And then you have other companies that have never even, couldn't even spell DOD, they come to work with us. And they're wholly dependent on DIU and, again, its partners to kind of walk them through this process. It's a challenge. I wish DIU had more resources to help companies uh, execute that, that mission um, because it is, it is one of the greatest limb facts uh, of working with the Department of Defense. And, and, it, allow, and it forces us to go uh, longer without solutions to problems, and it makes those solutions less um, palatable to a, a large swath of government customers and government personnel who don't want to deal with the trouble of of waiting or deal with the trouble of helping these companies go through you know get through those wickets. Um, and so they go for the easy solution, which is something that maybe uh, not nearly as capable or doesn't have nearly the legs that the the solution um, coming in uh, from the commercial sector could have. And significantly more expensive, also, I would imagine. Well, of course, there's a, there's a cost associated with that. So, you know, the commercial companies, uh, there's a cost. You know, there's a time, and time is money. Um, there's also uh, kind of management and legal and um, operational uh, energy that needs to be put towards getting through those wickets. And the companies, you know, at the expense of their focus on other things which are probably more value added than whether they completed a certain form a particular way or crossed the T's or dotted the I's. 
there are legitimate concerns that DOD has, and DIU recognizes this, and and um, and and it's one of one of the challenges we have managing companies that maybe have personnel that that are either foreign personnel or are, are you know they're not clear, they've not worked with DOD, um, and so there's a cultural challenge there where you know DOD is very security conscious. Uh, it's not that these companies don't have ethical uh, aligned good people. But it is challenging, so it makes it hard for these commercial companies um, uh, to work with DOD because not all DOD entities are willing or able to work with DIU in that manner. Yeah, and I, I imagine one of the challenges you face is that there, there are, you know, no matter how much help you try and provide, there are some companies who are just not going to want to do the extra paperwork unless there's some assurance or some probability that there's a contract waiting for them on the other side. So to that point, maybe this is a good time to talk about some of the successes that you've had in the counter UAS space specifically. I mean, I, I, you've probably got some sensitivities about talking about specific companies, but but what have you managed to pull off so far in terms of delivering solutions and moving things toward contract? Yes. Yeah, so um, I can't speak specifically to companies or um, uh, technologies. Uh, as I made reference to, uh, you know, we, we we supported uh, several DOD entities with uh, identifying uh, solutions in, in the counter UAS space, um, RF systems, uh, optical systems, um, radar systems, net capture systems, the uh, interceptor systems like a, a drone uh, hitting another drone. So these are all, uh, all areas where DIU has been able to actually contract with companies to take the technology that they've developed or are developing for commercial space uh, and find a DOD market for their technology. Um, I can't speak to the transition uh, um, status on any of those individual you know, companies, but we've created a model, uh, an acquisition model. Uh, we implemented that this past spring where we went to industry and we created a fairly smooth, seamless process to get non-traditionals and these commercial companies to come in, um, get a uh, to have a number of DoD partners that came with us to to go through the downscoping process to help identify those those companies that had a real product that was ready to to, to for evaluation or for assessment. We contracted 19 companies to come in last spring to kind of do an assessment. Um, we were able to to take them out to a, uh, a DoD facility. Uh, put them through kind of an assessment with uh, operators and, and different DOD partners and actually um, other interagency partners there as well. Um, and in the process of doing that, we gave uh, visibility to these small commercial companies, these non-traditionals, with a breadth of customers they couldn't get kind of through the traditional process of responding to RFIs and whatnot. So we had a large group of, of DOD and interagency partners that had visibility on what was happening um, during this assessment. And on the back side, the contract mechanisms uh, due to DIU's commercial solutions opening process, um, it allowed for interested customers to move quickly to the next step where we put seven of those companies on prototype contract to move out of that initial um, uh, kind of assessment. And those prototypes are ongoing. And then uh, the mechanisms are in place so that if if we get to the point where those prototypes are considered um, successful, then those successful prototypes can transition to a production uh, contract, which is seamless for the vendor. Um, and it's also 
much streamlined and much easier for the DoD customer um, so that they can get access to the technology that they're interested in, that they're validating, that they're participating in the development and, um, and uh, uh, application of. Um, and in the meantime, they're getting to work with that technology closely and many times in an operational setting where they can really refine what, the, what their concept of operations is and how this fits into their larger uh, mission. So I, I assume to do a lot of this prototyping work, you're partnering with operational units of, of some kind. It probably doesn't look a lot like a formal DOD test process, but there's, I assume, a military unit involved. So there's, and it, and it runs a gamut. So we, we, you know, we, again, DIU prides itself on working as closely as we can to the operator and the warfighter. So if we can work with an operational unit, that's fantastic. Um, even when we work with uh, kind of a program office or a headquarters agency, we work very hard to make sure that that headquarters office or that, that uh, program office or that headquarters agency uh, connects an operational unit with our vendor and with their product so that, that that vendor can get feedback from the end user. Because that's the most important, well, it's one of the most important things in developing a prototype that's going to work is getting that user feedback and that user engagement directly to the engineers and not through a, a, a documentation process, which takes months and it takes people with extremely uh, good communication skills um, uh, to do effectively. But if we can get those operators with the equipment in their hands, one, we're getting at least some level of, of capability out to the field um, so they can use it and, and at least get the benefit of that capability. But then the most important thing is that feedback loop that gets uh, generated um, so that the engineers who are developing and, and, um, and continuing to, to work on that prototype can understand how it's going to be used. And they, make, they can make some really smart, informed decisions about where they want to go with the product. For commercial companies that work with DIU, the benefit is DOD has some very sophisticated customers, uh, very sophisticated users. Um, and so what we provide is an insight and a view into the problem set they wouldn't normally get working with their traditional customers who don't, who don't have that level of sophistication. And so we can help them be, move at a faster pace than they normally could if they were just working in a commercial space. So I think that's another benefit. Lieutenant Colonel David Willard is program manager for the Counter UAS program at the Defense Innovation Unit. He's back with us for a few more minutes after one last break on Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbiu. Back on Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Lieutenant Colonel David Willard, the program manager for the Counter UAS program at the Defense Innovation Unit, talking with us about the progress DIU has made in bringing commercial counter UAS technologies into DOD and what it's learned from the process. So you mentioned a second ago that you've developed a model here, and I just want to be clear, is this a model that you think works well just for the counter UAS mission, or is it portable and mappable onto other things that DIU does or wants to do? Yeah, so this acquisition model, it's really just a variation on the CSO process, um, uh, and it was meant to be a little broader range and broader-minded to get to work with a larger swath of DoD customers, uh, DoD partners, I should say, um, and, and work with a, a fairly broad swath of commercial vendors. Um, we wanted to get kind of a lot of access. The CSO process, which is our bread and butter, mm -hmm. uh, utilizing other transaction authority, um, that works very well. So it really, it really depends 
Um, counter, it, I think the model works beyond counter UAS, and the model really isn't anything different than the CSO. It just is um, implemented in a way where we, uh, um, the, the idea behind this model is taking the CSO and using it as a kind of recurring opportunity for companies to join in, to get an assessment, learn what their homework is. Um, if they kind of clear a bar and we have uh, money and interest on the back end of that assessment, then they can move forward into prototyping. And then the idea would be at some point moving into like the next stage of, of actual test and evaluation, whereas we get several months down the, down the, the line or however long uh, it, it, it makes sense for and, and our, our DOD partners are interested in that company would then continue to move kind of through gates, if you will, to the point there that they have a fieldable solution that the DOD can then move um, directly into, into to acquisition on. And for technologies that bridge into the commercial sector, um, like counter UAS, uh, for problem spaces that are moving um, as rapidly as counter UAS, it seems to be a pretty good model that allows us to kind of refresh the vendor pool um, on a regular basis, maybe every six months or every year, kind of doing this um, repeated and allows the companies that maybe maybe they did have homework to do, maybe they, 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 they weren't quite a great fit, they can at least get feedback from the DOD to hear, hey, it will never happen because of this reason, X, Y, and Z. Or if you do this one, two, or three things, then you're going to be really interesting to us next time. And that's really valuable for the commercial companies to hear because many times they go and they, they, they hear nothing back from their submission. Um, and, you know, they may submit five, ten requests uh, for proposal or um, uh, responses to RFIs, and they get little to no feedback from, from the government. So if we can give them that feedback, that's really important. And then they can go and come back uh, kind of the next time and participate, continue to participate. And that, that seems like a model that works pretty well for Counter-US. Again, I think it works outside of Counter-US. We haven't tried it outside of Counter-US. You know, we're still um, growing as an organization, and I think more of these opportunities will arise. So you just did a good job of explaining the process, and I'm not an expert on the the vanilla CSO process, for lack of a better word. But but how is what you just yeah. laid out for us different from from the traditional CSO model? So the mechanics aren't that different. I mean, the process was still the same. We did a phase one and a phase two. So so we went out to industry with an area of interest. We solicited uh, industry. Uh, we we received a number of responses back. We worked uh, again with a um, a broad set of of DOD partners to do the down selection beyond the phase one, kind of into the pitches where we invite companies in to spend um, an hour or so, hour, a couple of hours with us so we can kind of dive a little bit more into the actual engineering and the product and the viability and the feasibility of the, the science as well as the business. And then uh, from there, we simplified really the phase three. Normally we would approach each individual company and kind of request a proposal from each one of them and create a different statement of work for each individual company. In this case, we, we in essence, replaced that, you know, that request for prototype proposal with a fairly simple statement of work um, that was common to all of the companies that basically said, hey, we're, we're going to have you, you know, we're, we're going to assess the, assess the military uh, operational utility of your product in a DOD problem set. And that was really that first assessment. That was that gate. Um, and so that, that, in essence, allowed us to get a hands-on look at the technology, to work with the company and kind of building up to that, to that engagement, that event. 
um, so we could see, you know, how sophisticated were they, are they on the technology, um, how solid is the team, how quickly can they react, how, you know, uh, those other things, those intangibles that, that you really, when you're, when you're looking for a vendor to execute on your behalf, they're important to identify. And so we had a chance to do that through that kind of initial assessment period. And then on the back end of that, that's when we went in and we said, okay, and in individual cases, we like the technology or, or we have a partner that, that wants to invest um, further in this technology. Now we'll go and we'll do kind of the next step, which is what is the, what is the prototyping for your technology and this customer look like? Off, you know, the, the, the DIU's normal process is we have that customer and that very specific use case outlined up front, and that's what we solicit, and that's what we look for a match for, and then we put companies under contract, you know, vendors individually to meet that individual customer's um, needs. In this case, we wanted to go after the broad set of counter UAS needs, and that's how we, that's why we modified um, the CSO process to, so that we could do that evaluation, that assessment, I should say, with a number of different partners who could join us through that whole process, DOD partners. Um, and then we had a, a larger, uh, broader range of companies that we could bring in because the costs were very low, um, because we didn't need to, you know, uh, we weren't committing to a long-term um, prototype with them. We were really um, committing to a short-term uh, assessment of relatively low dollars, small dollars for each one of them. Um, and that allowed us to, again, kind of get to a place where, where we could do the matchmaking on the back end, where we had a customer, and the use case that was specific for that particular entity, even though it all fit under the umbrella of counter UAS technologies. That's really interesting. Like, uh, is part of the idea behind doing sort of that military use case testing at that first gate, does that maybe reduce the number of cases where you carry a company all the way through the process and then find out kind of late that it's not going to be able to transition because it's not going to be militarily suitable? That's that's exactly it. I mean, you said it better than I could. Uh, you know, the intent of that first gate, that first assessment, was to do just that: was to assess the company, the technology, and say, okay, does this really have merit in the DoD problem space? And if it does, do we have a partner in DoD that is that that has this need and is willing to invest and work with us with this company to bring that company and that technology along to the point that that end customer, that DoD partner, could could use them um, as part of its broader solution or part of its broader mission um, at a later date. And that's what that first gate allowed us to do, just that. Lieutenant Colonel David Willard is program manager for the Counter UAS program at the Defense Innovation Unit. He joined us to talk about the progress DIU has made toward integrating commercial technologies into the military's tool set for defending against drones. We'll post more details about some of the prototype awards DIU has made so far at federalnewsnetwork.com. And if you missed any part of this conversation, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's going to do it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. 
And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.